0: Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Allison Leiby is a writer and comedian who started her own showcase at the Upright Citizen Brigade Theater in New York City, Called It's a Long Story. Libby's story is still being told. In TV, it has included late night writing on staff for Comedy Central's The President's Show and The Opposition with Jordan Klepper, as well as The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. She's written jokes for Triumph the Insult Comic Dog, published essays in McSweeney's Cosmo, Marie Claire, and The New York Times, and her initial work punching up jokes for Broad City has led to a lengthy working relationship with Alana Glazer. Libby executive produced Glazer's Comedy Time capsule and her Amazon Prime video stand-up special, The Planet is Burning. Glazer is now presenting Libby in her first off-Broadway production of Alice and Libby, Oh God, A Show About Abortion, which begins previews April 25th, 2022 at the Cherry Lane Theater in Manhattan for a limited six-week run. Libby sat with me to talk about how her comedy and writing career evolved from late night TV to prestige comedy to her own very personal and politically active work. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my Substack called Piffany at p-i-f-f-a-n-y.substack.com, so you can need bonus commentary on this episode, as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance, and now that that's out of the way, let's get to it! Congratulations in advance! for your Cherry Lane Theater run. Thank you. That's got to be so exciting, not just for you personally, but just knowing as a comedy journalist, comedy fan, the run of people who've come through Cherry Lane in the last few years, Alex Edelman, Jacqueline Novak, Hasan Minaj.
1: Yeah, it's, Such an important, like, to me, like, when I started thinking about the show, like, the goal was just to get a six-week run at Cherry Lane. Like, that, to me, like, I've already achieved everything I've wanted to with the show. I mean, obviously, I hope it continues on beyond this. But um, it's such a special place and is so well-regarded in terms of, like, you know, the performers that do runs there. And and it's just such such an achievement just getting to do it.
0: Now, I know, um, oh, God, an abortion show – is a long story. So let's go back to, it's a long story.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) Which was your first, was that the first showcase that you hosted in the city or had you done other things before that?
1: That was my kind of like show that I wanted to make. I actually start when I started doing comedy, the first thing I did was storytelling. I took a class at the pit from Kevin Allison and as a long, as a lifelong state fan, um, fan of the state, not the government, but the comedy show. Um I like storytelling was something that I thought was really interesting. And then I kind of just went into stand up from that. And so to me, like the the DNA of storytelling is very connected to stand-up. And I just knew so many stand-ups who were great at telling stories who like didn't ever want to waste time in their sets doing like an eight-minute story. Um if you only have twelve minutes. And so I made a show where I was like People that are purely stand-ups come tell a long story and kind of work out those muscles because, like, I found it to be such a valuable thing, um, which is funny because now I feel like it's come full circle where I'm technically doing a show that is stand-up but also a hybrid with storytelling.
0: Right, because well, what was the year that you pitched UCB and started doing It's a Long Story?
1: Oof. I mean, I don't remember. It's a <laughs> long time because it ran for Six or seven years. And that was a few and I ended it a few years ago. Um so BC honestly. before COVID. Yes, BC. Yeah. I ended it before COVID. It was not a it was not a COVID casualty as many shows were unfortunately. Um so it was going for quite a long time. It was my first like this is my thing in New York stand-up, like my first real like baby <laughs> for lack of a better term. <laughs>
0: um
1: where I kind of was like you know, it was my name, my 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 produce, my produce, selecting of comics. Uh, I hosted it, um, and I sometimes, like, also told stories on it. And it was a really fun – I mean, I'm very grateful that UCB let me do that. And so many of the comics that came through it were like, wow, yeah, this is really fun to just stretch out and do something like this. And I'm like, yes, more comics should, like – we know how to tell a story. We're very good at it, usually.
0: But, of course, you, when you started that showcase – it probably wasn't even a thought in your head that one day you might be able to no <laughs> use that to not. tell a story about an unwanted pregnancy.
1: Yeah, I mean that hadn't happened to me yet, so I had no idea <laughs> that I would ever really uh, experience it, let alone want to talk about it on stage. Um, but I, orig- I mean, the first the reason I got into storytelling to begin with was I lived in New York. I was a writer of sorts and kind of circling, you know, a variety of things around the entertainment industry, but not really figuring out what I wanted to do. And I had had this, um, near death experience when I was 19, I had back surgery and had like a, a severe medical complication where I almost died and then did an experimental surgery that saved my life. And like, while I had processed all of that in therapy, I hadn't processed it creatively yet. And I was trying to do some different things. I'd like written about it a bit. And then I tried storytelling just as kind of like a way where I was like, all right, I can tell more or less this story in eight or 10 minutes and find some downbeats and find some funny moments. And then once I did that, I was like, oh, the funny moments are way more fun to talk about. About and I just want to do stand up. So, you know, taking a taking a very traumatic or I wouldn't consider my current show um, about trauma, but taking a, a serious event and, and tell, and talking about it on stage is, is not new to me, but I am very, you know, I, th- I find it kind of funny that that was what I first started doing. And now here I am with this like huge moment right. and it's kind of the same thing.
0: Now I know you've also had to deal with blood clots too, right?
1: Yeah, that was the experimental surgery.
0: (laughs) So, (laughs) I mean, you could have a whole separate hour. uh, Not that I'm trying to pitch you the next show already, but you could have a whole separate hour just about the American healthcare system.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, that story certainly like deserves its own show. Um, I certainly find it to be much more harrowing than the one I'm currently doing. So it probably takes a little bit more emotional and mental energy from me.
0: Right. Because this story has a happy ending.
1: Yes. A great one. I get to do the show.
0: (laughs) Right. What was, but go back to the beginning, even before you started doing comedic storytelling in the city, what was the initial plan? You, you referenced circling around the industry. Were you trying to hit a bullseye somewhere or were you just,
1: I kind of didn't know. I, I went to school and studied English and, um, I desperately wanted to be an English professor. To me, that was like the dream, all I could ever want. Cause like, you just like read and write and talk all day. And now I feel like, I Hey, I, I, that I, that's what I do. <laughs> it's true. Like I truly have that career, but with like actual money, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, academia doesn't promise. Um, so I, I had, I'd really wanted to do that. And then I, I applied to grad schools and I got rejected from every grad school I applied to, which I had too lofty of goals also, um, very selective, you know, schools that have like six people a year get into the PhD program. Yeah. And I'm like, I could do that. And it's like, I'm <laughs> some person who had like I was like twenty-two. Um so then I moved to the city and was just kind of like I had done some like freelance, you know, some magazine writing and I worked in book publishing for a while and 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 I worked in museums for a bit. So it was all these kind of like entertainment adjacent things, just trying to figure out like what will be fulfilling to me. Um I, was a li- I have a lifelong comedy fan. I loved watching stand-up. I just didn't know who got to do it. Like, I thought there was a very, like, you know, somebody from NYU points to you and says, you get to do it or something. I don't know. I didn't really understand that just anybody could start, and as long as you tried, you could kind of do it for a while. Mm-hmm. And so then when I kind of, like, found that world and saw I was like, oh, I, this is actually the satisfying thing that I've been looking for and i'm very glad that i you know i was like 27 when i started doing comedy um or 26 or 27 so i had had like a couple of years of just like some different things that gave me one some like real world perspective on the kind of things that an audience who has money to pay for tickets might be interested in um but also it makes me appreciate so much what i get to do cuz i've had jobs that i haven't liked and i like my job a lot now
0: but once you found comedy how did you decide then how much to focus on your own stand up and storytelling muscles versus where you've gotten most of your gigs, which has been for TV writing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I got so many of those, so many of my television writing, or at least like my early television writing jobs, because I had been so focused on stand up and kind of the humor writing that can support doing stand-up sometimes you know lots of just like freelance humor pieces and like getting pops online but then also like being out there grinding every night and i had a day job for the first like five years i did it where i was like doing like data entry or something um that i truly couldn't tell you what it was now um i know i worked at usa today briefly but i don't know what i did there um so i you know i would wake up at 730 and go to a nine to five and leave at five and go do mics and shows until like 1am and come home and listen to sets and wake up and do it all again. So, you know, that grind, I think, was what like got me to a point where I could get kind of the the president show, the opposition, you know, and eventually, you know, into narrative television.
0: Is that also what first brought you in the same orbit with Alana Glazer?
1: Actually, it was stand-up. It was just stand-up. Uh, we were at—I had—I had never met her, but I know we had crossed paths once or twice, like through the UCB world. And um, we were both on a show. I didn't talk to her uh, at it. Like we, I just showed up and I was like in the back, and then she went up and did her set, and she was kind of like just getting back out there into stand-up after you know the first two or three years of Broad City. Um, I went up after her, and after. My set, when I came back to where the comics were sitting, she wasn't there anymore. And then the next morning, I had a DM from her that was like, give me your phone number. I want to talk and talk to you about stand-up and be friends. (laughs) So... It was kind of just like, it's, it's the thing that, like, I remember my mom, when I first started doing comedy, was like, you never know. Chris Rock said, you know, in an interview that they just found him, somebody found him at a comedy club one day. They saw him do stand-up and thought he was great, and look at him now. And I'm like, Mom, that is psychotic. That is not how this works. It is never going to be how this works. That is not even a real story. And then, like, it is, in a way, how it can Work Because if you're out there grinding and you're getting better and you're doing well, eventually somebody will see you doing well because you've spent years and years
0: and hours. So when Alana slipped into your DMs, how did that feel?
1: I was just like, is this real? Like, I just felt like it had to I was like, this is probably a bot, you know, just thinking like it had to be a joke. But um, it was kind of crazy. I, I had not really I, I, I think at the time also, you know, I've thought about and I look back on my you know, career at this point and I'm like, wow, it was never as bad as you thought it was, but I felt, you know, it was at a period where I was feeling extremely overlooked um, by a lot of different corners of the industry that I felt friends of mine were getting attention from. And someone I've never done JFL new faces and I never will now, but like, <laughs> cause I'm not a new face. I'm an incredibly old face, but like, you know, there was a period of time where that was something that was like really upsetting to me and i felt like well what am i doing like i'm just out here i hadn't gotten like any i'd done like one tv job at that point and i was like what am i doing and i was i was i had had, you know met on every like a bunch of late night shows for writing jobs like i I, none of them hired me and i was like about to move to la when it was like it was like two weeks before maybe not two weeks maybe it was like a month or two before i was like my apartment building had gone up for sale where i was Mm -hmm. renting and they they were like get out and i was like I don't know. Do I just move to LA and try and start over? Like, I feel like I'm hitting my ceiling in this city. And then like, in comes this like DM from like the comedy darling of New York (laughs) at the time being like, Hey, you're really great at this. And I want to talk to you about that and like figure out a way to work together and and know you more. And it was like, even though I did then move to LA for a year, I came back like every six weeks, like a psychopath because I just can't be away from New York. Um, but it was kind of this, like, boost of, like, okay, like, maybe this the validation that you want is not going to come from the institutions that you expect. But it doesn't mean you're not successful and doing well and making something meaningful.
0: Did you end up moving to L.A. for that uh, short-lived E! talk show?
1: No, I had gone out there for a few months for that, and that was my first taste of Los Angeles, like, as a, a comedian i'd been out there like you know years before just like visiting a friend who lived there but like i wasn't doing comedy and then i went out and i was there for like two or three months for all four episodes that we got to make of that show and um, and then i came back and then i was here for like about a year and then that's when i moved okay Um, i did the like very stupid but i guess you have to like move without a plan and then like surprise like nothing worked and the next job (laughs) i got was in new york and i was like well sometimes you have to live in la to get a job in new york
0: well, because, you know, you mentioned four episodes. That show was called We Have Issues. Yes. Which starred Annie Letterman and Julian McCullough yes. debating the hot, hot topics, like The whatever, View, but for young people.
1: Whatever was happening in pop culture at the time, which, you, like, I, a gun to my head, I could not answer you one single story we talked about <laughs> on that show because it feels like another era.
0: How did that experience, how did, were you able to brush off that experience? Because... At the time, it must have felt like, oh, you know, I'm moving. I'm going to L.A. I'm working on this TV show. Everybody watches it. And then it just completely implodes.
1: Yeah, it was. I knew at the at the at the top, like before I even went, that it was like. We're trying out four episodes and hoping that it gets more. So, like, there was kind of a built-in, like, this is probably only going to be four oh. episodes.
0: Okay, <laughs> um, yeah, they weren't they weren't promising more than the four. Yeah, okay. but
1: there was, like, because it was, like, they were doing, like, I think Michael Costa had a four-episode show at that time. It was when they had canceled the soup and were like, wait, now what? And they tried a couple things, and then they landed on, it's just Kardashians forever now. Um, but it was, like, kind of... Nice that I knew that, and it wasn't like the devastating blow of a show getting canceled, which I've now experienced multiple times um, in the Comedy Central uh, (laughs) eleven thirty p.m. slot. Um, Specifically, that time slot is one that is just primed for absolute disappointment. Um, Wonderful shows with great hosts that I've loved, but um, I just like I kind of knew that wasn't going to be the case, and it was kind of a nice like dipping a toe into like what is the world of making TV. Of course, this was like incredibly low budget, E did not want to spend a lot of money on anything, but it was like a fun group of like all comics. And I kind of got to see the very nuts and bolts of making like studio television in a way where I was not like, I didn't like upend my life and move across the country for two months. Like I, it, I came back to my apartment and like figured it all. So it wasn't like this Awful, devastating now, what experience, but it was like after that i don 't think that the next job I got was like for like another nine months um and that was when I went to worked on triumph uh, the election specials,
0: yeah, how did you get on robert Spigel's radar uh
1: I mean i got it it 's got to be just that we were with the same agency when that packet went around um but i, I did <laughs> I did a packet, I was like packet queen for a while. I remember mm-hmm. another just devastating era of my career where I was just. I think I did, like, 40 packets one year. Um, It just felt like I was doing one every week for a different show, and I got none of those jobs. Um, But I had done a packet for Triumph, and uh, and it was just, like, one of the... I had such a fun time writing it, and it was so easy when I was doing it. Like, it just kind of, like, I was like, oh, I know this voice because, like, I know this character... And boy, is it easier to write for a puppet dog than it is for a uh, human man? Um, for me, <laughs> uh,
0: um, you can put you can put the word poop in a lot more.
1: Yeah, it's like it's like he's dirty and funny and like mean mm-hmm. and like you can be mean in a way that you that human beings uh, on camera never get to be, and like for some reason with like triumph, you you can. Um, but I did this packet, and uh, Smigel loved it, and and he was like, "Do you mind if I use some of these jokes at the?" The Kennedy Center, like maybe it was like the roast of James Carville or something. And I was like, yeah, sure. And now looking back, I'm like, I probably should have gotten paid for that in some way. (laughs) Um, But then they brought me on and it was a completely remote job, which was a great practice for now. Um, So uh, but that was kind of my first like higher profile TV writing job, I think. And one that people had heard of.
0: (laughs) Right. And then you mentioned the Comedy Central slot. Mm-hmm. which were, you know, political minded, whether it's the president's show or the opposition with Jordan Klepper. Was that a pivot that you leaned into for lack of a better word? Or I mean, or- I
1: think it was just like, that was the landscape of like non-narrative television at the time that everything in 2015 to 2018 was like mega political. And it was just like, well, if you want to work on a show, you're going to have to figure out how to write topical jokes. And that was something that like, I think doing stand-up kept me very good at because you're just trying out new stuff all the time and you kind of a lot of like kill your darlings vibes. Um, So, you know, being able to just like write topically, but then also like I found, I found both of those shows, excuse me, to be a, you know, they're, they're all, they were both just a little left of, of just a straight, down the road, like, The Daily Show, where it's, like, a sincere, earnest host um, talking about the news, you know, whichever host you're referring to, but, like, you know, where it's just, like, the person is being themselves, where these are both characters that, like, you got to kind of, like, come at things from different angles and kind of write, like, kookier, weirder stuff that I think wouldn't fly with, like, an average, like, Seth Meyers couldn't have said some of the jokes that we wrote for Jordan or for Anthony as Trump just because they were in character. So like Mm -hmm. you can kind of give them a pass to say like wackier things. So it felt a little less dry. Not that those shows are dry, but as a writer, they can get a little tiring.
0: Right. But then of course, after that, then you, you get hired on marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Yeah. Which is political, but not topical.
1: Yes. (laughs) Because you're jumping back to
0: 1960.
1: Right. Very different politics. Right. (laughs) In some ways, possibly better, but in most ways worse. (laughs)
0: But that of course coincides with the experience that that forms the heart of oh god an abortion show. Yes. So when it when that's all happening, do you have do you even allow yourself to have the thought of like, oh, what would Midge Basil do in this situation?
1: I mean, I think there's definitely like some you know, influence from writing for her and just kind of, you know, being able to, like, dial in on, like, what does a woman who wants to speak her mind talk about? And, like, of course, I'm living that um, and have been for, you know, the last 12 years, but also my entire life. Um, So I think, like, it did kind of just, like, help me be in the zone to do that, whereas I think if I were writing on a different kind of show, like, at the time... That material might have developed differently just because of, like, you know, it, you know, oh, God, a show about abortion is not super politics heavy. It is, of course, a political show in what it's talking about. But, like, I feel like had I been in a late night show at that time, like, it would have probably had more of the DNA of, like, writing political satire or something like that.
0: So, yeah, you were just saying working in narrative television and period Yes. It feels like every single word I'm saying has sort some sort of allusion <laughs> or reference to <laughs> it is, pregnancy yeah. or menstruation yes. or.
1: Yes. <laughs> it is wild. How much, you know, just of the language. And I've found that in writing about like writing this show is like how much of like our worlds, you know, and the way we talk, like even just like, even just words that are the same, but have different meanings. Like you're just like, Oh, like stuff that women's stuff is everywhere, but we never get to talk about it. <laughs>
0: Right. Just a few minutes earlier you were talking about learning how to kill your babies yes. in writing.
1: Yes. Right. <laughs> and now I've done it as a person.
0: <laughs> yeah. And you know, I know we're talking right now before the the run at Cherry Lane Theater has even begun. But knowing that you've been working on the show for at least the past year in in your head the last couple of years. Yeah. As the politics keep changing, is that directly or indirectly or subtly? Or how is that, how is that percolating in your head, much like my sink is percolating? how is <laughs> I have to acknowledge it, right? I have to acknowledge it.
1: Yeah, it'd be weird to not. Sounds like a metronome in the background.
0: <laughs> but how, how, how has the current politics and the current debate well, no, there's not a debate. There's just whoever's in power is making right. the decisions. Right. How is that influencing or somehow seeping into the show, or is it? Or do you try not to let it?
1: I mean it. It is not like I, I do not address like the ongoing, you know, legislative changes that are happening in this country. Uh, one because they are ongoing and pretty hard to you know pin down and write about. Um, but also like. The point of the show is to tell, like, here's the experience that I had from start to finish. It's every detail. It's, you know, a little bit of talking about, you know, womanhood and motherhood and how we kind of have to navigate this. And and, and my point in doing it is to be like, this is a pretty everyday thing that can happen. And it is not a trauma. And I think the more we can recognize that abortion is not just this Absolute tragedy, and every time it's like this woman is in a you know she almost died because she was. Ra- it's like that. It actually, a, a large number of abortions that take place are people like me who are like, oh, I really am not interested in having a baby right now, and I can go to this facility and be done with that and move on in an afternoon. I think if people really understood that that's what it is, and that it's not always like trauma porn, that maybe the power that the people who hate abortion seem to have over it can be released a little bit. I think those people who kind of live in the middle of like, "Eh, it sounds bad, but also, I don't know, women or people, you know, I think there's a lot of people who have trouble navigating, you know, how they feel about it because I understand that it is an incredibly prickly issue, but, you know, to present it as humane and, and, and normal um, feels like the most political thing I can do. Um, There are activists who can, you know, get up and, speak to statistics and, you know, stories and, you know, laws and cases or whatever. And, like, all I can do is try and make it kind of funny and 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 approachable.
0: Right. And I know at the beginning you mentioned that if you had a vision board for the show, getting the six-week run at Cherry Lane was, was the thing. So are there other things on that vision board or... I mean, do you, do you allow yourself to look past?
1: Yeah, I, do, I definitely, you know, I, you know, I like to approach it like one thing at a time, like, all right, let's get, let's get the run. And now I'm like, let's do the run well and sell as many tickets as possible in the hopes that it gets extended. I would love to keep doing it, even though now I haven't, at the time that we're recording this, I have not done it yet. And perhaps I find it absolutely exhausting, which I'm sure it will be, um, But I want to, you know, extend. I want to take this wherever it will go. And if people are interested in hearing this, like I want to be able to do this show and tell the story to as many people as want to hear it, and hopefully some who don't, um, whose you know worldview can be unlocked a little bit by hearing something funny. Um, You know, if it could be a special one day, that's a dream. If it's six weeks at Cherry Lane and it and it ends, then it's not that different from my pregnancy. So. I mean, <laughs> um, but, but it would still be a huge, huge, huge accomplishment to just get to do a run like this and to get to do it so many times for so many people, even if it just ends um, in six weeks. But hopefully it it goes on for a while. And it's, it's obviously easy to point to the success stories of other people's one person shows that are more narrative.
0: Do you feel any sort of inherent uh, pressure that you put on yourself? doing a doing this show in texas or someplace like that where you want to address the elephant in the room oh gop yeah elephant if you want to address the elephants in the room
1: a lot of puns to make (laughs)
0: right
1: (laughs) Uh, yeah i mean i definitely you know with going to texas like part of me is like i'm going because i want to run this thing a few times before it's on its feet in new york um, and i can't really do it in new york right now so i'm part of like part of me is like stick with what you're doing like don't but Part of me is like, I have to talk a little bit about what's happening there. Um, So I'm working on some jokes just for the top, just to acknowledge that I'm in the place where people are getting arrested for having miscarriages. And, you know, I think that that's what sucks is that, like, I don't want people to put like the whole of abortion on me. I am just telling my story as a straight white cis rich white woman or woman in like a blue state. And it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, my story is obviously the best case scenario, but like I want to be able to find ways to platform and, and allow other people to tell their stories that might not be as like contained and, and jokey as mine, but that's also not my job. My job is to just be funny with my story. Cause that's all I can really tell.
0: And your story of course is being presented by Alana Glazer yeah. who herself in her post-Broad City life, you know, she put, up, she put out her own special through Amazon. Um, she became very, very active politically. Yes. Using her stage and her platform, her various platforms for that. How has she been able to inspire or influence what you're doing with her involvement?
1: I mean, we like I, you know, we've done so many shows together and we kind of meet and chat about it. And I have, you know, a couple of different people I work with just to help me kind of get this thing, you know, ready to go. Um, but she's such a, you know, she's such an insightful, you know, writer and performer, especially when it comes to very tiny things. I think like she's a great like we, we can all look at Broad City and see like how specific and how small so many things were but that were so funny. Um, which is also the kind of comedian that I think I am. And, and this show really highlights how I can like, you know, that I like to dial in on those tiny little details and spend, you know, five minutes talking about like what everybody was wearing in the waiting room. Because that to me is interesting because I like observing things and commenting on them. And she, I think she's very good at that too. So even just like being around her and seeing what she latches on is such a helpful kind of person. And then also just like her, you know, Political involvement is incredibly inspirational, and probably part just like even wanting to do this show, like seeing that like comedians and people like get out and really embrace politics in a way that doesn't feel awful um, is always an
0: inspiration. Well, Allison, it's inspiring to see you be able to take uh, take this moment in your life and turn it into a show, and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing where where it goes from here. Me too. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you. This is great. Last first.
0: This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. Theme music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Gigglechick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my Substack called Piphany at P I F F A N Y. for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O'McCarthy. McCarthy. Thanks for listening.